Hi, my name is Pat Blythe, and welcome to Love the Music. Today's date is Tuesday, March 16, 2021. Welcome to the Pandemic Interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time, podcast episode number eight. We're on a roll and so far sticking to the Tuesday early morning schedule. These interviews are part of a series of conversations I've had and continue to have with over 50 artists during 2020 and 2021. Originally recorded as reference for my column, I was persuaded to make them podcasts instead, specifically so people could hear what the artists have to say in their own voices. I won't take your time here with all the details. You can read about it in my February 3rd column at Don't Believe a Word I Say, or you can listen to the first podcast on January 26th with Paul DeLong. We're now over a year into this worldwide catastrophe, and I have every intention of continuing with these conversations. Today's artist is singer-songwriter Ember Swift. Publicist Jane Harbury reached out to me a few years ago with a recommendation I come and see Ember show. Ember was performing at Hughes' room in Toronto, apparently one of her rare visits here. Although originally from Toronto, Ember has been a resident of Beijing for 12 years. She tries to make it back to Canada at least once a year, which doesn't always happen, so I am extremely glad I took the opportunity to catch Ember's show. She has kept my attention, and we have kept in touch ever since. This is the Coles Notes of what I wrote about Ember almost four years ago. Writing since the age of nine, performing since the age of ten, Ember released her first self-titled album in 1996. With a lovely, clear, resonating voice, she is a teller of tales through her songs, covering life in Beijing, her children, love and loss, and everything in between. A bright wit, she subtly masks any political comments. Everything is in her music. Ember records in three languages, English, French, and Mandarin. Although she speaks Mandarin fluently, at the Hughes Room performance, she told us the story of an elderly gentleman asking if she could in fact speak the language. Her blonde hair, apparently a dead giveaway, she most assuredly wasn't from China. Conversation ensued between the two of them, and when it ended, the entire exchange had in fact been in Mandarin without the gentleman being at all conscious of it. I am looking forward to Ember's next trip and performance back here in Toronto. Where were you a year ago, and where did you expect to be now? Well, a year ago, I was here in Beijing, but I had just arrived back from Canada because I spent a month in Canada, and it was great. I did a bunch of shows and took my kids back to see the family, Uh, but I was preparing now in September for a tour in North America because last year in November, I went back and did some shows and then took part in the Mundial conference in Montreal. Uh, So yeah, a year ago, I was between tours, but um, in preparation mode. And I was also actually finishing the tracking on my newest album, which is uh, poised for mastering right now. So I was very much hurrying to finish the album before going to Canada for the next series of shows. So where did you figure you'd be now then, a year later? Well, I was, uh, well, a year year from last year at this time. So I was supposed to come back from 
Canada, which I did. And then the spring included a European tour, which of course got canceled. The summer included a few festivals in Canada and the US, which I was very excited about um, and really wanted to bring my new album, which I assumed would be done and in my hands by the spring. Um, I wanted to bring that with me and start touring it. And then come September, I would have been here, you know, with the kids back at school, but preparing for an end of October, early November European tour, which has also been canceled. I used to tour so, so much that it seems like a small blip of touring because I used to be on the road yeah. in, back in the days when I was so active as a touring artist, I used to be on the road more than two thirds of the year. So for me, it's still just a little blip, but you're right. I would have had three major tours yeah. in the calendar year from September last year to September this year. And yeah, I would have had the new album finished because the touring uh, would have been the impetus to get it done, right? To have it in hand so that I could be hopefully selling it where I was, wherever I was going. But lots has been delayed, as you know. Yeah, everything, life has been delayed for pretty much everybody. Well, the album did get delayed, but it's still in process. And we just finished approving all the mixes. I'm currently doing gigs again. Beijing, where I live, has been uh, virus-free for more than a month. But that means cases-free. So actually, the last reported new case was back in June, but then they continued to report cases until they were fully recovered. So it's been all fully recovered in Beijing for more than a month now. And so, and but that's zero uh, cases in process. So actually right. the last reported new cases were in June. Okay. And then they maintained the numbers until everyone was recovered. So it's been over a month since uh, there were any cases in Beijing at all. Yeah, so we're back on stage, and I have been performing a lot. I have three scheduled performances this week. I had two last week, one the week before, one the week before that. So it is a great relief to be playing again. Has the pandemic, or isolation in particular, changed your approach in how you've kept yourself relevant? Oh, relevance. This is always one of my, one of my most, um, I don't know if I was going to say favorite topics, but I don't think it's my favorite topic. I think it's a topic I like to discuss because it troubles me, the notion of relevance. I do feel that it's defined very subjectively. Mm -hmm. So yes, isolation does take us off stage. It takes us off touring routes. It takes us from being in front of people. But in some cases, um, it made us more visible in terms of our online presence as artists but I argue that maybe it's not important to focus on this notion of relevance and maybe the only relevance is the relevance you have to yourself and the relevance you have to your own art. So for me, the, the period of time, the long period of time between uh, gigging gave me a chance to focus more on the details of my new album, for instance, which to me is very relevant and increases my relevance <laughs> uh, to my music and to the world once the music is released. And it allowed me to really focus on my craft. So I did a lot of writing and a lot of practicing. And that also, to me, is probably the most relevant thing there is. It is the most relevant thing. It, 
the basis of everything we do is craft. That's right. So is what's going on around the world reflected in your writing or your music? That's a really great question, too. I did a lot of prose writing. I'm also a writer, um, like a pen to paper writer. Mm -hmm. And I did a lot of writing about philosophy, approach to life, a lot of contemplative writing during this time. So yes, I would say it affected that writing. Did it affect my musical writing? Not lyrically so much, but I think melodically and in terms of energy, some of my new songs, which are not on the new album, they're the, for the next crop. They are a little deeper and more, more um, inward looking, okay. which I think is pretty expected after so many months of isolation. And that's in the music. So that's, I, I look forward to hearing that because um, there's been a lot of writing, a lot of artists out there have been writing lyrically about the pandemic and isolation and, and uh, et cetera. Um, but bringing that forward in the music itself, I think is a really special thing. Well, let's hope I was successful at that, but mm. I'm still working on some new material yeah. that I, I really want to just spend my time on. One thing about this year, it's really made me want to not focus on time to just say, you know what? It's okay if things are delayed. They're only going to be better by the time they're actually finished. And it's okay if I take more time to write this next collection of work. I haven't even released the current album, which, as I said, uh, got an extra six months of focus. And I think it's all the better for it. I think for a lot of artists, the pressure's been lifted. They don't feel so compelled to, f to finish everything now. The deadlines are gone. Are you I feeling, that. Is, that, is that what you're feeling? I agree with that. Some of the deadlines are self-imposed. Like if I have a tour coming up and I want very much to make sure that I provide the new album to the listeners, then of course that's a self-imposed deadline where I want the album in hand before I get on the plane. But in other cases, just on a more general level, everyone was stopped. Everyone was delayed. So it takes the pressure off. You don't feel like, oh, if I take an extra four months or six months to finish this project, I'm somehow behind a global momentum. There is no global momentum. It's all been delayed. So that is kind of a relief in a way to find that everyone's in this boat and all we can do is enjoy it yeah. and find the joy. Try and find the joy. Yeah. How are you coping personally? During the real height of it, which was here in China, it was from February to until about end of April. During that time, of course, my children were out of school and I'm a single mom and I do some sideline work, which is some voice recording work, some audio production work, music production, some singing for hire work. Luckily, I have a small home studio, so uh, I was able to couple together a uh, an income that allowed me to still pay my rent and feed my children, which was good, but it was a bit of a juggle. I wouldn't, no, I'm being, I'm being subtle. It was a hell of a juggle during that time to have the kids underfoot, to try and manage homeschooling, to try and get these, these sideline gigs accomplished so that I could have enough money for all my life needs and uh, to not lose my mind. Uh, so coping took the form of hyper-scheduling in a way, not in a 
in a rigid way for the kids, but to say, okay, every day, these are the things we're going to accomplish. The kids had a, had a little board that they could fill in and I had a little board and we all um, balanced our accomplishment goals during that time. It wasn't a eight o'clock to eight thirty, eight thirty to nine. We we're not that rigid. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. I'm not that type A, but we uh, had a certain list of things that we wanted to accomplish. And I have to say that I couldn't have survived it without the grandparents of my kids being present and helping me with the childcare. I couldn't have done it. I think I would have lost my mind. I don't know what would have happened to me, but uh, it was tough. Yeah. Having two young ones at home, having to homeschool and keep your career going. How was your creativity levels at that point? Or you were just, were you just focused on the needs of the kids and sort of just keeping everything going household wise? Well, the first month or so was just survival, but I managed to find a bit of a rhythm and especially with guitar practice and um, forcing myself to keep steady on the, on the uh, album work. It kept my head still in music creation, at least to a degree, Um, a degree that's probably not uh, to the extent I would have wanted, but at least to have a little bit of that in my days. Also, I did, as I said, a lot of prose writing, a lot of just Mm. writing. I took the time to, I'm still working on a memoir that isn't finished the editing stages. And during all the lockdown period, I carved a schedule out for myself that included steady working on the manuscript. So I think by forcing myself into that kind of, um, those kinds of self-imposed expectations and goals, I managed to keep myself from losing my mind. I'm not a TV watcher and I'm not a, I don't have Netflix and I, I don't really watch screens very much, but I watched a few more movies during this time than I almost ever do because I found that sometimes the isolation was so overwhelming that I had to go into another world for a little bit, just a couple hours every five or six days. So I actually kind of caught up on some classics. I finally saw The Graduate. You know, I'd never seen that movie. I knew what it was about, but I'd never seen it, you know? (laughs) So I did a few things too that were, they're more restorative and maybe more therapeutic. Those are the ways that I coped. Live performance now um, obviously is very key to the development of artists and the continuing development of artists. What do you think the live music scene is going to look like coming out of this whole pandemic situation? Do you think there's going to be more or less, more focus on social media, maybe less focus on social media? How do you think that it's going to look in 2021, 2022? You know, I'm, I've never been good with predictions because I've never, I'm always looking at things from an alternative or less, less commonly seen perspective. So my predictions are always wrong, but I'll tell you what I hope happens. I hope that after this period of time when people haven't had live music and have only had screens, have only had online or live broadcasts uh, through their phone or through the internet, that I hope there's an increased appreciation for it. I hope suddenly people say, hey, this long lost art of going to a concert 
and watching people perform in front of us in real time, that feeling, that intangible magic that floats through the air from an instrument over to someone's ears in the same room, same time and space, that's pretty amazing. I hope that happens. But I I don't know, because I'm usually wrong about my predictions. <laughs> but yeah, I would I'm, like that to be the result of things. Well, not so honest. I'm not looking for a prediction, just looking, you know, in, in what you think might happen. How do you think the music scene is going to go, is going to look going forward? But on the note of, of what you just said, you have two young children. And a number of artists that I have, I've interviewed also have young kids. And one of them in particular was very concerned. My daughter is never going to be able to experience live music the way I did when I was growing up going to concerts with the crowds and experiencing all that by the time we get to that point again he figured that his daughter was going to be so used to getting her music fix from screens and streaming that it would it get to the point where she wouldn't she wouldn't be interested she could be bothered to go out to a concert that she'd be stuck in front of a screen uh, what do you think about that I think that's a really valid concern. Uh, the the hope I just expressed is based on the reaction from people who have experienced the shoulder to shoulder, you know, that crowd wave that happens with a big pile of people all experiencing the same thing at the same time. But our children, if they get too used to this, will never have that as something to compare it to. So maybe not just that they won't be bothered, but it will be a foreign thing for them to imagine being in a crowd and watching music, maybe even undesirable or something that they're fearful of, which would be worse. I, I think I could echo that artist's feelings. I'm worried about my kids too, more so, uh, less so about the live music, but more so in general where wearing a mask and being worried about touching others or touching surfaces is something that goes with them throughout their entire lives because they're so young and impressionable. And this experience will set in them a fear of contact, human contact, and a fear of just being free and relaxed out in public that I think is tragic. I'm very nervous that that's what will be instilled in my kids. Uh, but then going back to live music, because it's resumed here in Beijing, for instance, this coming weekend, there's an outdoor festival and there's live music happening outdoors. It's the first outdoor festival that I've, that I've seen. It's actually a burger festival of all things, <laughs> but uh, there's going to be some live bands and there's a bunch of vendors. And I'm pointedly taking the kids because I want them to experience live music. I, I'm worried about this. I want them to say, to see not just what mommy does, they've been to my shows before, but to see how it feels to stand in front of a stage and watch people. And I'm hoping that everything like that, all the live shows, the festivals, resumes for the world, um, just as it's starting to resume for Beijing. So I'm feeling a little less fearful now that I know that things are coming back here, but uh, I think it's a valid concern. I don't want my kids glued to a screen for the rest of their lives, and to have that be their normal, it's worrisome. The first piece of music we're going to hear is a brand new single off Ember's soon-to-be-released album, Mid-March Meltdown. Broken Thing is a wistful and heartfelt song of the eventual breakdown of a relationship, of broken hearts, broken hopes, and broken dreams. 
and wondering if he should try just one more time to fix a broken thing. With her beautiful, natural vibrato, Ember's voice sings clearer, stronger, and truer than ever.
Welcome back to the Pandemic Interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time. We just heard Broken Thing by Ember Swift from her soon-to-be-released album, Mid-March Meltdown. You're listening to a Zoom conversation I had with Ember back in September 2020. 2020, short question. Do you think it's going to be a career killer for those artists that aren't so well established? No, I don't. I think 2020 is a, a year we'll all look back on, which is, you know, that's very poetic. We'll look back with 2020, um, about 2020, and uh, we will see it as a year where we had to take a pause. So those who aren't established this year, they didn't, it didn't delay their establishment any more than it delayed their lack of establishment, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a pause, a pause button. And they will have time, presuming, ho- being hopeful and optimistic that everything will recover, they will have time to continue the path towards establishment. No, I don't think it's career killer whatsoever. I think that's a perception. And many might walk away from this year and say, forget it. I just need to be a little more stable. I've had a year of of question marks in all areas of my life. So forget it. I'm not pursuing this craft. I'm going to go get a normal job and be an accountant. Okay. Some people will have that reaction. No, no disparage. That's not a disparaging remark towards accounting, but uh, you know, we need accountants. We love our accountants, but uh, really people may decide that this is the year that changes their trajectory but to each their own, if they choose to continue to pursue art and um, music making as a career path, then there's only one way, and that's just to keep moving forward. Do you think this is a good time to pause, reflect, and prepare for the possibility of something like this in the future? Um, but to have things kind of ready, you know, I'm in the studio, I'm going to record six songs instead of three and just sort of have something in your back pocket, but be ready um, for something like this hitting again. Well, I think globally, not just as artists, but globally, yes, we must see this experience as something that that forces us to be more prepared in the future for something that could happen globally or even regionally there's so many um there's so many natural disasters happening as a result of climate change that you know it's only just a matter of time before it happens to toronto or before it happens to beijing so we must be prepared for something to derail our personal projects and plans and careers and you know our our general daily comfortable lives so i think this has got to be a wake up call for that but when it comes to music in general, yeah, maybe it's a great time to learn how to do something related to our crafts, but not necessarily dependent upon public spaces or traveling. So I know some friends who have finally set up their home studios. I know other people who have explored more in the way of um, production, but in terms of rather than working with live musicians, working with MIDI and trying to learn a bit more about uh, recording in general. I know other people who have decided to pursue long lost sideline creative pursuits, like musicians who have picked up paintbrushes and uh, um, painters who have, have picked up guitars, you know? And I think this is a way that we can prepare 
to kind of realize we can diversify without it negatively impacting our passions. And it doesn't mean that we, that we're somehow, you know, there's a, there's this idea that if we don't focus on our purest passion, like for me, that's songwriting. If I don't focus on that, then I'm not going to ever be a great songwriter. But I disagree with that notion. I think, yes, focus is required. But if we occasionally diversify and look outside and try and figure out what other things we like and dapple in those things, it will inform our passion and therefore enrich it. So I think this has been a time for people to do that. And it could be a time in the future for us to have that response as well. That's a perfect segue into the next question I had was, do you think artists in general may be a little bit more flexible or adaptable to change with uh, maybe have some more creative approaches? I don't know. That's a great question. I'm wondering if it's about whether we are artists or if it's a, if it's really dependent on our vocation or if it's dependent on our personalities, because I do know some people who are only musicians only live music players and they have had a hell of a time during this period because all that they are has stopped and it's been very difficult for those people that I'm thinking about to look at how else they can do their art do their craft so sometimes it's personalities sometimes it's how they have they have established or cobbled together their vocation specifically. But maybe there is an argument to say that as musicians, as people who have been entrepreneurs in our lives, we know that there are always bumps in the road. There are always fires to put out and questions to solve. And uh, we aren't protected by a corporation that you know, gives us a monthly salary. We're not right. protected by those measures. And therefore, we're used to chaos. We're used to ups and downs. We're used to feast or famine. And maybe that's made us a bit more resilient. There, there could be an argument for that. However, I really, I really have to, to mention that some of my friends in this business have flourished during this time. And some have just gone down into caves. So I don't know. I don't know if artists are so good at it. I think it's really person to person. I think you're right. I think some will flourish in this. Some are great with this. They're okay in their isolation. And others have just uh, bottomed right out. Exactly. Okay. What do you think it's going to take to get people back out to see live performances in larger groups? Right, larger venues. The big concert halls or the big stadiums. If Beijing is any indication, uh, I don't think it's going to take much more than a clean bill of health for the city in terms of this COVID-19, in terms of this virus. Uh, My first show on August 22nd, after eight months being off stage, was at capacity. And the next full band show, my first show was a duo, but my full band show on the 4th of September was also packed. People are so eager to go out that uh, I don't think it's going to take much except, you know, a big green check mark beside the city and uh, social distancing rules to be laxed. That being said, I'm sure that there will be some hesitation and it will be a slow ramping up. So venues here 
were open in uh, mid-July. And at the time, they opened at 30% capacity. Then it was edged to 50% capacity. And then the capacity rules were lifted. But they didn't host any bands with singers because in the first stage of live music resuming here in China, they could only have musicians on stage wearing masks. And they could only have small ensembles, like a duo or a trio, because they couldn't have large bands on stage because they were too close together. So that stage took place throughout the summer. And my first gig as a singer uh, was on August 22nd, and it was as a duo. And the full band didn't get to take the stage until September 4th. So it was a two and a half months process, perhaps, maybe two months before things started to look like they used to look in a live music venue. So I think it will take some time. It will take a lot of reassurance for the public, especially in the West, where it's been so hard to keep it contained. Yeah, specifically in the U.S. Yes, especially in the U.S., One thing we all miss is the freedom to travel and explore new countries and new cities. Close your eyes and imagine a romantic getaway roaming the streets of Paris, the title of this next song. If you're gonna make me feel this way, I promise I won't walk away from this. If you're gonna make me feel this way, I'll open my heart-shaped fist and you. Reach for my lonely little hand Come on with me Clasp my love sweet form Like Father Grace being born On the streets of Paris Only love is free I choose you and you choose me On the streets of Paris La ville d'amour je t'aime You're gonna make me feel this way I promise I won't fight to stay alone If you're gonna make me feel this way We'll lay up our well-worn souls And we can make music on cobbled little stones Come on with me on the streets of
Welcome back to the Pandemic Interviews, Conversations in a Changing Time. We just heard The Streets of Paris by Ember Swift. You're listening to a Zoom conversation I had with Ember back in September 2020. The sales of musical instruments, specifically online, skyrocketed. The other, the other thing that was occurring in parallel is that musicians were picking up and familiarizing themselves with instruments that they had learned to play years and years ago. The flute that was, you know, gathering dust in the nether regions of a closet or a guitar gathering dust in the corner of a room. Drummers were picking up guitars, bass players were turning to keyboards, etc. So there was this whole um, almost like a renaissance of music. People were taking vocal lessons. It was just, and, and I'm, I'm referring specifically to musicians. They were starting to write. Um, if you're a guitarist and you're writing on keyboards, it's a different mindset. It's different chording. It's different sounds. The music that comes out of that is, is a little bit different. So my question, the question to all of that is, do you think there might be a new renaissance in music coming? Well, wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> I hope so. That would be great. I agree. I have seen that happening. And even for myself, I've been playing a lot more piano, which was my original instrument. And I, I have been working on some techniques with guitar that I haven't worked on in years because I've had the time. And really, that's been the beauty of this period. As much of a struggle as it has been psychologically, the gift has been the time. And those instruments that collect dust in our houses, we look at them wistfully during normal periods because we're so busy with our pre-planned schedules. But because of the forced pause, it's been so nice to dust off those instruments. And I think everyone has really appreciated that time in terms of if it's been giving us the opportunity to do what you just mentioned, which is, you know, pick up something else, mess around with something else. And, and you're right. As soon as you approach a new instrument as a, as a melody creator, as a, as a composer, it shifts your perspective. So some of my new material was inspired by my increased piano playing, my opening of those Royal Conservatory books that I still have from my teens. I still have them, and my kids suddenly got interested in these classical pieces. It was great. They're like, wow, mommy, your fingers really move fast. <laughs> it was very funny because they hadn't heard me play the classical pieces before, and um, just remembering that I can play the piano, uh, informed some of my new writing. So yeah, maybe a renaissance, even if it's just a personal renaissance for each individual. Collaboration. <clears throat> Do you find that in collaboration with other musicians has increased? I have, have been working in the last year with uh, Gabriel Baudouin, who is my, my right-hand man. Uh, he's my guitarist, and he and I have done more songwriting than I've done like collaborative writing than I've done with anyone um, in, in my career. So in the last maybe, we've known each other for coming up on three years now, and maybe the last two years, we've been writing a lot. So during the pandemic times, we did a lot more collaborative work. We also did some production work for hire as a team. 
and that's been great as well. So yes, I have been doing a lot more collaborating, but I'm not sure it's only just pandemic inspired. It's having met someone with whom I have this kindred musical spirit. So that, that has been amazing. However, I just did, um, I do some production work for hire, as I said, and I've been working with an artist in Canada who is uh, an amateur songwriter, um, a guy who's done another career his whole life, but writes songs on the side. And he just wrote a pandemic song that I collaborated with him on um, in terms of the writing process. And then I worked on the production and that was a fun experience. These kinds of things I wouldn't have had time for if I were on the road full time or prepping for a album release tour, for instance. So yeah, collaboration has increased and I, I think I'm, I've been enriched by it. I'm better for it. Now, the how do you find collaborating over the internet? It's not easy. Uh, the work I do with Gabrielle is what is face-to-face, but collaborating over the internet is not easy, even so much as uh, working with a producer on the new album, and he's based in Toronto. I found him in Toronto. It's so great to be working with my people, even though I'm not <laughs> there. And as a producer, that requires... Um, you know, usually I sit beside a producer in the studio, but that collaborative work is another layer where there's a back and forth. There's a, you know, he works on it. He sends it to me. I feed back on it, offer offer suggestions, veto certain things. I send it back to him. So that's a similar process to the collaborative work I did with a songwriter based in Canada that is more stunted in a way. However, I kind of like it this way. I have to say that I've been such an independent artist my whole life that without having really, really almost identical aesthetics with someone like I have with Gabrielle, it's really hard for me to collaborate. I'm, I'm a, not much of a team player, I have to admit. I'm kind of a, you know, I'll handle it kind of person. And so I think that the collaboration that happens over the internet kind of suits my personality because when I've got the baton, I'm in control and I do what I do. And then I hand it back and then they've got the baton and they either undo what I've done or they do what they do and add to it. And I get it back and I have the option to undo what they've done. (laughs) And we, we go on like that. And ideally you have someone when you're collaborating, you have someone that at least shares part of your audio aesthetic and it's not always easy, but to me, that process is better than the, unless, as I said, it's with someone with whom you have a really great synergy. If it's with someone you're not quite in sync with, doing it face-to-face can sometimes be almost hair pulling. It's just so irritating and frustrating because the person goes in a totally different direction. You think, what? That's, that makes no musical sense whatsoever. I'm out. I'm gone. I'm going to go get something to eat, you know? <laughs> Do you think... This, going back to local indie artists, um, I have no idea what the situation like is in, it, it, what it's like in Beijing, but thinking in terms of Toronto anyway, do you think that this whole pandemic thing might be a golden opportunity for local artists to shine? This is the first time in our history that the, everybody, every artist in the world, doesn't matter how big or how small you are, is on the same, it's on the same level. It's all the same playing field. Everybody's in the same situation. 
So this is a, obviously a rare occurrence. So I'm slowly, I mean, we're, we're not going to get back to going to see the police or Elton John for a little while yet, certainly not venues of that size. So maybe this is an opportunity for local artists within their communities, within their cities, towns, or whatever, to sort of start to rise up and increase their visibility. In Canada and Ontario, Toronto, whatever, I mean, they've always been the, you know, shop local, eat local, grow local. And I just threw in there, how about listen local? I think it's a wonderful concept. I think, yes, if this, if that is the result of this, where people say, okay, I'm not going to see these global artists because stadiums are of course off limits. Instead, I'm going to go to a backyard concert at Pat's house and hmm. watch these local musicians. I think that's, that's a wonderful result of this where people can say, oh, wait a second, um, you know, there is so much talent just next door and I can look locally for my entertainment cravings. To meet those cravings, I can look locally. That is a wonderful result of this pandemic and may it persist even after things resume, a, you know, a comparative normal, a relative normal to what it was hopefully people will continue to listen locally. I love that saying. It's great. But I do think that still, it does happen and it has, there is such a supportive scene for local artists in Toronto, at least. And there's a really great supportive scene for local artists here in Beijing as well. So I'm not sure that the pandemic um, necessarily will launch it above and beyond the stars. But if for a time the spotlight shines on that which is on offer locally, that's a wonderful result. So I, I celebrate that. Whether or not these large artists are drawing the majority of the public's attention, I think uh, young artists, young in terms of career experience, those artists who are still trying to establish themselves should not be discouraged by the presence of the bigger artists performing again. It is, it's a, everyone's path is independent and unique. And every time a young artist, a, like a new artist on the scene comes up to me and says, how do I establish myself? I say, one foot in front of the other, just keep doing local shows and then make small concentric circles around your local region. And eventually through touring experience or even short, like one night, you know, a show in Kingston and then back to Toronto, like that kind of development hones one's craft and experience and stage pres presence and um, just all of those combined abilities to eventually get to the stage where they can tour internationally. So many artists these days, what they want is to write a great song, have it go viral on the internet, and then have it immediately launch them into an international touring career. And uh, that's unrealistic. If that were to happen for them, they would tank because they have no stage experience. So I think one foot in front of the other. Patience, people. Take your time. Eventually, in 20 years, you'll have a career behind you that's 20 years, 20 years long and proud. So I've never been one of the, I've never been a sprinter. I, that, that's evidence in my career path. Just, I've just kept going at my own pace, never sprinting. 
Do you think the current circumstances have in any way heightened the awareness of the contributions of the music of the music community, and possibly maybe even increased or recognized the value of music of the music community and what they what they what they give us? Well, from this current uh, stage, in my experience, I had many people come up to me, especially after the full band show on September fourth and say, oh, what a relief to see live music again. It was so soul-fulfilling to watch you guys play live and to see something in real time and space. And it's given me some sort of, you know, spirit food tonight that I have really been starving for. So perhaps yes. Uh, I I think the answer is yes to your question. I think people have really been missing being in a, in a collective environment and consuming some sort of art. But that's possibly true in all ways. They've been missing being in a collective environment and collectively experiencing anything, um, whether it's the consumption of live music or being at a gallery or going out to the theater and watching a movie as a collective or just being at a dinner party. I think what we offer as live musicians is the chance to experience this, as I said, this intangible magic of art being created in the same moment as someone in the same room. Like you can experience art being created in the moment it's being created, but ultimately what is it? It's human contact. So it's having contact with people who are art makers and who are giving of themselves in that moment. So yes, hopefully people will, on a holistic level, start mm. to appreciate those things that we collectively experience together as humanity. Um, but I definitely have uh, hope that it will at least give a spike of awareness to the value that live music offers society. And I'm, I'm with you. I believe that there's some sort of whole body, whole spirit therapy that comes from experiencing live music something very therapeutic about it facebook's come up with they're going to be pulling all the stream all the musicians off facebook that are streaming they're going to be shutting it down well i roll my eyes that my first reaction is to roll my eyes at that because um you know the all these the controls of the various social media giants it's just it's exhausting um if they pull the live streaming off Facebook, musicians will find another means to stream. There'll be, there'll be more, you know, dedicated streaming providers and, and or YouTube. It will go to that. Um, but I live on the outside of that world. I couldn't do a Facebook live stream from China. I couldn't do it in terms of connection because of the internet controls here. So I watched all the musicians kind of, get ensconced in these various platforms because of this desperate attempt to, as you said in the very beginning of this interview, to not lose relevance, this fear of losing relevance. And I had no technological means to be part of that, um, that wave. And I watched it from the outside and I thought, what is this about? Do you really need, do we really need to, I mean, I had no choice. I couldn't get involved, but that forced me to have a, a, um, you know, an observer's standpoint. And I realized for myself, 
I could, I could have gotten involved in the live streaming platforms here in China. No problem. I, there's lots of them. But I chose not to get so involved and now look back on it and feel it was the right decision for me because uh, live streaming out of fear of losing relevance uh, was the wrong decision. I didn't want to just live stream because I had no gigs. I wanted to live stream because I had something to share or because I felt like there was a demand for it. You'd get screen, you get screen weary, don't you? As a viewer, you get screen weary to have to schedule your life around these live broadcasts. And then and it's all of a sudden you've, you've consumed way too many hours of screen, screen time. And I don't know, it takes yep. the magic out, I think. Okay, three more. Actually, these are three final questions, and they're pretty short. What have you learned from all of this? Wow. <laughs> you want me to answer that in a short way? <laughs> oh, man. Well, there's so much, Pat. There's so much I learned from all of this, and I'm still learning. I mean, the first thing I think that I felt when China was on lockdown and the world was looking at China as this unsanitary nation that had allowed a virus to go rampant. And I thought, oh, great. I'm trapped in the unsanitary nation. And what am I going to do? You know, everyone else will, will proceed on their life, life trajectory and we will be knocked back many months. And there's this feeling of victimization. And that was a great learning experience. What a nice kick in my butt I got for that first perspective. Um, because, you know, you feel victimized, but then you also realize wait a second, everyone's becoming victimized now. So now you're no longer the victim. And, and what is this notion where we globally, we need to point fingers. We need to find those to blame the constancy of finding those responsible for things that have happened in the past is what slows us down in terms of trying to figure out how to solve what will happen in the future. Cause there will be more pandemics. There will be more global crises. I think the biggest learning experience I've had being outside of my culture, living on the other side of the world, is that we are all one world. And even though I'm not of this culture, but I'm within it, I live within it, we must, we must be more unified as a globe. And that means in terms of compassion and response and the absence of blame. This has been the one of the biggest messages that that I think has come through for me, but I'm not sure it's come through as a globe because there is still so much finger pointing. There's still so much politicization of this global crisis that really tires me. It makes me sad. And even to this day, there is the ultimate China blame for COVID-19. That is just so wrong. It's so wrong. It has really been pulling out the stops to, for trying to solve this. The first stage of it, watching China scramble to contain it. I mean, the first couple of weeks, China, of course, scrambled to save face, which is what every culture would have done. And then they realized they, they've made a mistake and they scrambled like mad and they did a hell of a job. I really, I look at the way China contained this and continues to control what's happening here with a great admiration and respect, especially now that you can see what other countries who didn't care what the results have been for those countries like Brazil, like the US. So the, that whole need to start seeing our world as one world and not have this separated view was, one, was a lesson I needed because I am an expat here. 
So I often see myself as not of here, but of somewhere else and not really, you know, someone who's worldly, but still separate. And that, that was one of the biggest learning experiences I've had. And I I feel much more connected to a, a whole humanity, but I think on a personal level, what I've learned is just to relax, just to stop, to slow down, to just take a breath. And I'm sure I could list another 50 answers to that question, Pat, because there's constant learning. Two positives to come out of all of this, one personally and one professionally. Well, professionally, a very big positive for me has been the additional time to focus on the details of my next album. It's my 13th career release. It seems to me that's got to be lucky, right? Lucky 13. And to have had these extra six months to really, really look at every little detail and examine how I want these songs to sound and then also consider how I want them to be promoted. So I'm working on some video projects for them. Really think about where... I want these songs to reach, how I want them to reach people, in what way. That's been a great professional positive. And on a personal level, I've really enjoyed the time with my kids. It's, that's, I say that with a little bit of a disclaimer, because of course it's driven me crazy. And there have been times when I've just been desperate for school to be back in session, like, please give mommy some space. But during the even though homeschooling was a complete shit show. Can I say that in a podcast? Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Okay. I hate being their teacher. You know, I'm a pretty good teacher, but I'm not my kid's teacher. So I hated homeschooling. They hated homeschooling, but it was very good to see the stage they're at in terms of their learning and to see how they learn and how they approach learning and that little window of insight into their brains and their current stage of development was a very big gift that most parents don't get because the teachers are handling that and we're busy with our lives and we maybe will oversee their homework a little bit every day, but otherwise we don't really see how they process the information and integrate the learning into their minds. So I I got a glimpse of my kids at this stage. They're eight years old and six years old respectively. And I I got to see a side of them that I maybe never would have seen. And I'm really grateful for that. Last question. Who is your dream artist or band to either open for or share the stage with? Well, I have a favorite artist. I have met her and I don't have a dream to open for her or share a stage with her because I would feel that I am not worthy. (laughs) I would only wish to achieve you know, obtain her respect would be an amazing gift. But uh, uh, Joni Mitchell is absolutely my ultimate favorite artist in the whole world. I respect everything she's done and and respect her, her career journey. And she's, she was, she's actually my only favorite artist. I, I find her to be amused still to this day. Everything I listen to of hers, even if, even though it's dated, there's some stuff she's done that is, is not dated. It's still relevant in terms of its like musical um musical approach uh yeah a huge fan huge fan of Joni Mitchell definitely I got the chance to meet her in 2001 it was it was my career goal to meet her and when I had met her I thought well maybe I should just pack it in and go into another another (laughs) another job I'm glad I didn't do that because I'm now you know I think I've 
become a better artist <laughs> since 2001. That was 19 years ago now. But yeah, she's my fave. You've just listened to an interview I had with Ember Swift in September 2020. Many thanks to Ember for juggling her schedule. With two school-aged children at home and a 12-hour time difference, we somehow managed to sync up for this chat. Check out Ember's music and videos on YouTube. I'll be the first one in line for a ticket the minute she's back in town. Thanks to all of you who have taken the time out of your busy schedules to listen, inviting us into your cars, offices, and homes. To Eddie and Quincy Bullen and Paul DeLong, many thanks once again for writing and performing the Love the Music theme song. Follow me on Podbean or any one of the platforms you're using, and you'll be notified automatically when the next conversation is published. I am Pat Blythe, and you're listening to Love the Music. Have a great day and a wonderful evening.